0: Hello, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 371 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It is Thursday evening, December 23rd, 2021. Tomorrow is Christmas Eve, but we are getting presents and handing them out here on the Duke Basketball Report podcast because we have to talk about the fact that Duke is not only 1-0 in the ACC, but also has secured another commitment this one, a class of 2023 recruit, we'll get to him. But first, I am Sam Klein. I am your host for this episode. I am joined, as always, by Donald Wine and Jason Evans. Donald, good evening, sir.
1: How are you? Doing all right. I am here in Texas for a few days for Christmas for the family or with the family. So uh, But yeah, last night was a really interesting game to, to have to not only watch, but break down. So I'm glad we're getting to do it. Absolutely. Jason
0: Evans is also here. Jason,
2: good evening, sir. How are you? Doing well. Um, I mean, we got to get this conversation going. I I, I said to you guys, there's no way you can't say that this was the most important game of the season for Duke. That's that's absurd. But it's way up there in terms of what we learned about the team and how this team will develop. This is a game I think fans are going to look back on at the end of the season and go, that was a turning point. This is, we got to, it was huge. It was huge what happened last night.
0: There are a lot of dynamics here that we have to get into, but I'll tell you just very briefly in case for some reason you didn't get to watch. Actually, if you didn't get to watch, I would recommend going back and watching this game because one, you don't get another Duke game for another week, but two, as Jason said, there was a lot of interesting stuff that happened here. We are going to break all of that down for you. So last night in Cameron, Duke takes down Virginia Tech 76-65. to It was, I'd say it was a pretty fun game to be watching. It was was a little bit stressful in the middle. Virginia Tech took a lead late in the first half that they held on to and even grew into the second half. It was an eight-point lead at its largest. And then Duke went on a 13-0 run that ended about uh, six or seven minutes into the second half, at which point it felt like the Blue Devils kind of had the game in hand that seemed like they had all the momentum and it was, I I think if we're, if we're going to talk about the good, you know, we'll, we'll do the headlines, but I think we're going to highlight AJ Griffin a lot in this game because of the outstanding performance that he had. But gentlemen, as I said, the headline comes first, Jason, I'll come to you. What was your headline
2: for this game between Duke and Virginia tech? I've got new look Duke dismantles ACC's second best team. I
1: like it, Donald. What do you have? Mine is Duke's password for comeback win against Virginia Tech: P five A G two one exclamation point. I got that. That was good.
0: That was really good. I, I went with big win with small ball. So let's. Ooh, I, I, I like that. We're all, I, I think we're all on the same page here, Donald. I'll let you. I'll let you kick us off, and I will give you a choice of topics. You may talk about the game plan. You may talk about AJ Griffin and you may talk about Paulo Bancaro, but one of those needs to be your first topic for, <laughs> for this recap. And I didn't tell you that that was the case, but I am assuming that one of those three topics is in your good. Am I right?
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I'm going to start with AJ Griffin because I think we just need to talk with, about him off the bat coming off the bench over the last couple of weeks. We've talked about this, how he, we've seen him get better and better and better and gaining more confidence Leading all the way back to the preseason, going back to that knee injury that he had then, the knee injuries that he's had before. This is a new look, AJ Griffin. He is one of the most confident guys on the floor, and he looks to make an impact every single time he's on the floor. Get this, guys. For I believe the second time in three games, AJ Griffin led the team in plus minus. He was plus 17, 13 points, four rebounds, one assist. Like this guy literally impacted every single. Part of the game. He had a steal. He had a block. He literally filled the stats sheet with anything that we needed to get through that second half. And he had 10 points in the second half. The only person who scored more than that in the second half, Paula Bancaro. So AJ Griffin has become a huge part of this rotation. And I'm so glad that we are starting to kind of see what we expected to see uh, from the beginning. His injury seems to have been pushed to the rear view. He looks to be very, very confident, and a confident A.J. Griffin, as we learned last night, is a very dangerous one for the rest of the ACC because he can impact the game in many ways.
0: Coach K was asked after the game specifically about A.J. Griffin, and one of the most interesting things he he said, I think, was that he turned to John Shire and Chris Carowell last night during the game and asked them, how long do you think A.J. has in him? Uh, He played 24 minutes last night, and I don't think it seemed like he was getting too tired. Jason, actually,
2: what did you no, no, Coach K said he thought he was getting a little bit tired down the stretch. Uh, and I believe that A.J. is just not used to uh, he's not yet used to going at, at this kind of pace. Um, I, look, w- we've been saying for weeks, um, I've been saying that I wanted him to have a big game against real competition. I mean, he killed Lafayette for 18 points, South Carolina State for 19 points. But I mean, this is a guy who played six minutes against Gonzaga, just two minutes against Ohio State. So we've been waiting for him to show he could do this against real competition. And make no mistake about it, Virginia Tech, who is the number 22 team, number 22 in Ken Palm's rankings coming into this game, is a legitimate opponent. I think they're the second-best team in the ACC. And A.J. plays the 24 minutes against them. And like Donald said, an absurd plus 17 when he was on the floor. Um, He he does need to get ready to play 20-plus minutes every night. And not, you know, commit. He was committing some fouls late. I think because he was a little bit tired. Some of his energy started to go down, and he needs to, you know, get into that kind of shape where he can play that kind of role every game for Duke because he's he's really 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 good. And uh, look, in the last four games since the exam break, and and I want to point out, us on this podcast, we talked about over the exam break. We're like, what's Duke working on? What's going to change? And we all said. Maybe A.J. Griffin's going to finally emerge. Maybe A.J. Griffin's time is finally here. Since the exam break, here are his numbers. Get ready for it. He's 17 for 26 from the field. That's 65% shooting in the past four games. Seven of seven at the free throw line. He's hitting 50% of his threes. He's got 14 rebounds in four games, eight assists, and only one turnover. And that step-back three that he has is just an absolutely lethal weapon. And I want to tip my cap to Mr. Donald Wine who in the preseason when we did our prediction contest said, A.J. Griffin's going to lead this team in three-point shooting. I, I, I almost laughed out loud when you said that. I was like, there's just no way. And boy, was I wrong because this guy looks like he is the real deal. That step back three is a lethal, lethal weapon.
0: We have talked so much about how polished Paulo Banquero's offensive game is because I don't think we've and, – and I think it's just because he's coming off the injury. We have not talked about – how polished AJ Griffin is because he hasn't shown it yet, but clearly in this limited uptick in his playing time so far in, in December, it feels like he's, he's turned a corner for this team and that he can, I know we'll get a little bit to the, to this in the bad um, that he's able to spell some of the big guys who, who may not be able to compete in certain lineup situations. I wanted to talk about the run that Duke went on in the second half, but uh, Jason, I want to throw it back to you to, to kick off that conversation so as I said in the in the quick recap, Duke was down by eight. They were down by four at halftime, and then coming out in the second half, Virginia Tech was able to balloon that lead. Keve Aluma and Justin Mutz were playing out of their minds in the first half, and then all of a sudden, Duke started creeping back in, creeping back in, and a few minutes later, Duke was up by a few points, and it felt like they were able to hold the Hokies at arm's length the rest of the way. So tell me what happened during that run. Why was Duke able to, to stop... Virginia Tech's momentum and just turn it right around on
2: them. Oh, I'll tell you what happened. Defense. Defense is what happened. Duke's defensive intensity in the second half was the key to them winning this game. And in the post game, Wendell Moore and Paulo Banquero, who were the two guys um, that Duke made available to talk to the media, they talked about the defensive versatility that it gave Duke when Duke went small with A.J. Griffin playing instead of Mark Williams or Theo John. Um, our ability to switch one through five was a huge key against a Virginia Tech team that was playing five guys out, five guys in the perimeter. They, they wanted, Virginia Tech wanted to do two things on offense in this game. One, they wanted to shoot a three-pointer. And two, they wanted to get Keve Aluma or Justin Mutz one-on-one in the post. And, and they were very successful at that in the first half. And in the second half, by Duke going small and having five guys who could switch anything and guard anybody, um, it allowed Duke to really stifle what Virginia Tech was able to get on offense. I I mean, in the first half, we did a terrible job identifying like where Hunter Couture and Storm Murphy were on the floor. We let them shoot three-pointers. We we locked that down in the second half because we could switch better. Virginia Tech went from shooting 40% from three in the first half to shooting just one of nine from three in the second half. They were just 26% on three-pointers on the game. This is a team that's like one of the top 10 best three-point shooting teams in the country. Virginia Tech hits 40% of their threes. They only hit 26% against Duke. It was their worst game from three, their worst game from the perimeter on the entire season for Virginia Tech. And that wasn't because they were cold. It was because Duke was able to apply great pressure on them on the perimeter because we went small. And, you know, I I can wait and get into it later on when we're talking about Paula Banqueiro but I think we saw the start of a major trend. I'll wait till we get to Paulo because I want to talk more about going small uh, and, and Paulo and how it relates to him. I'll let you guys get in on the defense, but I think we, we saw the beginning of something very significant for Duke.
0: The, the defense, as you said, Jason, was important here. And the fact that Duke was able to display all that versatility was, was key because they hadn't, like, like you said, they hadn't really run a small lineup for an extended period the way they did last night with AJ Griffin able to not only stay on the floor, but, but be really effective in that Duke's got two guys in Griffin and Moore, And Trevor Keels is really one of these also to some extent, one of these defensive Swiss army knives who Duke can Duke can be switching those guys like crazy. Jeremy Roach isn't quite big enough to be switching on to, to big guys and locking them down, but the rest of those guys can, and they were creating turnovers. They were creating a lot of havoc on defense and it didn't feel like in the second half, when they were going on that run, it didn't feel like Virginia tech had an answer for that. Duke was able to make the adjustment at halftime to, to, to create the the environment for all of that switching and all of that chaos. Donald, what else did you have on, on the defense and that run in the second half? It,
1: from the eye test, it just looked like they were able to make something click, right? Even with the small ball, they were able to make something click on defense that frustrated Virginia tech in, it wasn't the big men, because I think we'll talk about the big men a little bit later, but on the perimeter, they were able to, again, we talked about in the preview, force these guys to make bad decisions with the basketball, and they were able to either take bad shots or, or make bad decisions. In the first half, we weren't doing that. So that flip, whatever we were able to do, those halftime adjustments where we were able to come out and be able to expose the fact that they can make some bad decisions with the basketball, led for us to use that for our transition. We were able to make good decisions on offense. And because of that, that was the difference. And really, like you said, Sam, we were able to hold them off down the stretch because we were able to take care of the basketball and they were not, they, they, it wasn't necessarily turnovers. The turnover battle was 11 to 10, but it was definitely something where Virginia tech fell out of sorts. And once they did that, we were able to capitalize and creep back into the game and just hold them off.
2: Well, you're right, Donald, that the turnover battle was just 11 to 10. But Virginia Tech, I believe, only had two turnovers in the first half. So they had mm-hmm. nine in the second. Nine is a big number. I mean, this, is, this game was a tale of two halves in, in, a, in a many, many different ways. And turnovers were one of them. And Duke was able to use those turnovers. And it was deflections. It was steals. It was just you know us messing with them on, on defense. And we use that to transition and get easier shots on offense. Good D leads to good O, as we full well know.
1: And there was one, I believe there was one possession where we tipped the ball like four times on the same possession and then finally stole it and then went (laughs) down and got a layup. Like great, great job in the second half of making sure we were frustrating them. Even if we didn't get the ball one time, we made it so that again, they forced another bad pass and another bad pass. And that led to a steal, which led to points on the other end.
0: Jason, I want you to take our next topic, which is Paulo Bancaro, who was excellent last night. In, in both halves, but really in the second half where he was able to to make the adjustment and, and become the big man for this team, which he has, he has not had to do much so far this season because he's usually playing next to Mark Williams and Theo John. Those guys only combined for like 20 minutes last night. So Paulo was out there playing center for a good chunk of the game, and he was key to that run in the second half, right?
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, so Paulo was 23 points, eight rebounds, three assists. Not a bad day at the office for him. Uh, he was okay in the first half. He wasn't great. And in the post game, he talked about the fact that he was settling for jumpers too much in the first half. He said he took three or four ill-advised mid-range jump shots. I'm not sure if he's been listening to the podcast. <laughs> of course but he has. Yeah, I'm sure he has. We've been talking about this regarding Paulo Bancaro that he needs to not you know, it's not that he shouldn't ever take a mid-range jumper, but he needs to not settle for that too much. And in the second half, um, boy, he he was really able to take the game to Keve Aluma again. This is something he talked about in the post game. He said he made Aluma defend more, and and what Paulo really did was he used the space that Duke had on the inside to control the inside part of the court on offense. And by that I mean with without Mark Williams and Theo John in the game, there was plenty of room for Paulo Bancaro to e- either starting in the post, or I think he prefers to start on the perimeter and then drive the ball into the post. There's just not, there's no room for guys to help on him there. He's able to go more one-on-one and he is, his skills are so great. His strength is so great that he's borderline unstoppable um, when he's, when he's in the post, essentially going one-on-one with guys. And I, I don't know. I don't know for sure, but I think it is very possible that the best version of Duke, the best version of this team is a version of the team where Paulo Bancaro is a dominant offensive weapon. And if that is the case, I think that is only true. I hate to say it. I think that version only exists when he is the biggest player on the floor for Duke. I, I, I don't think he can be a dominant offensive player unless he has space to operate in the post. And, I, and I'm not sure he's able to find that space when Mark and Theo are in the game. I'm not, by the way, I know you guys want to jump in. I'm not saying Mark and Theo should not play or anything absurd like that. I, I want to be absolutely clear, but the best version of Duke, if the best version of Duke is Paulo Bancaro doing what he did last night in the post, then you have to wonder how much time Mark and Theo get um, while, you know, while Paulo is out there. I think part of that, Jason
0: and, and, I don't know if this is a, a good or a bad, but it's an observation. I think part of that is that Duke was playing to Virginia Tech's speed and style last night, um, slowing it down a bit more. For sure. Where um there there weren't as many fast break opportunities. There were only, if I if I got this right, there were only 60 possessions on each side in this game, which is much slower than Duke usually plays, but is much closer to the way Virginia Tech normally plays. I believe so, it was
2: 65, but that's still a very, very six, slow yeah, number. So
0: yeah. so not as many um, not as much like like run out opportunity for Duke a lot more slowing it down and when you slow it down um, you may sort of get that that clogged feeling on an offense so um, Paulo needed a little bit more space to to roam around so it might just be that in a game like this where you're playing a Virginia Tech team that, that is highlighted by you know a certain offensive style and, and a certain defensive style this is the best that Duke can do I think that the, the the best version takeaway of that from this game is that Duke is adaptable. And this is not the way that Duke played against Gonzaga against Gonzaga. Duke was able to have two bigs on the floor at all times Absolutely. to counter the fact yeah. that Gonzaga has two real bigs on their team. Um, Virginia tech has two bigger guys who are very effective um, in, in Aluma and mutts, but a different style than Gonzaga plays and Duke was able to adapt.
1: Yeah. I, I think honestly, I don't know if last night was the best version of Duke, but I do know this, that we have one of the most versatile guys in in a while in Paulo Bancaro and the way that he can be dominant last night, he was dominant by being the biggest player on the court at times. We've seen him against Gonzaga be dominant with Wendell Moore or with Trevor Keels against K- Kentucky last night, AJ Griffin was the sidekick in the second half, along with Wendell Moore kind of in the first half. We have times where he is not going to score or someone else goes off on a long run. I think when it comes to Paulo Bancaro, we're showing his versatility more than the fact that he needs to have certain players on the court or he needs to be the biggest person on the court. I think it's more about he can adapt, as Sam just said, he can adapt to the circumstances and know what Duke needs to get through. And last night he was able to figure it out in the second half. And again, with A.J. Griffin as, as kind of a as, as sidekick in the second half, they were both able to make it where Duke came back and Virginia Tech never could handle them from the thing.
2: Really quick, Sam, um, you mentioned that, that a lot of this is Duke adapting to, to the other team and to their style, and, and Virginia Tech does present some unique um, sort of challenges. Uh, as we say, you know, Keve Aluma and, and Justin Mutz are their two bigs, but those guys are, are very much perimeter-oriented bigs who, who like to go from the outside in and that kind of thing. And so it is, uh, you know, Duke isn't going to play a team like this all the time, but I do want to point out something very significant that happened late in this game. Coach K clearly recognized that Paulo needed to be the only big man on the floor and that Duke needed to provide that space for him because there were moments down the stretch at the very end of the game where because of foul trouble and other things, Duke needed to bring in another big guy and they turned to Bates Jones, which kind of shocked me when it happened at first, but I was like, okay, actually that makes sense because on offense, Bates Jones is not going to clog up the post. He's going to go hang out on the wing and wait for you to kick it out for him to shoot an open three and and so by going to Bates Jones instead of Theo John or Mark Williams, Duke was able to maintain that spacing, that space in the middle for Paulo to operate. I just thought that was really significant.
0: I want to transition to talking about the bad, especially now that we've, we've talked about the lineup and, and the big men a little bit, because I think if you want to take a, a bad thing away from this game, it might be the play of the big men, even though it might just not have been their night. Donald, I'll, I'll let you go first. What do you have on the bad here from, from this win for Duke?
1: Yeah, it is the bigs. It is, you know, Mark Williams and Trevor and, and Mark Williams and Theo John for as many games as we have marveled about their success. We do have to comment on the fact that they weren't that great uh, this, uh, last night. So it's one thing to have an off night on the defensive end and on the on the uh, off. I'm sorry. Hang on. It's one thing to have an off night on the defensive end, but on the offensive end, we expect them to kind of between the two of them contribute 10 to 15 points. They combined for zero last night, and that's not what we're expecting from them on the offensive end. Defensively, yeah, you're going to get some rebounds. You're going to get some blocks. You're going to get some, some tough defense from them, and that can always remain constant even if you have a bad shooting night, but zero points combined for both of them. It felt like they were a non-factor on that end. And then at the, at the certain time, once we switched to the small ball, there was they didn't find themselves an opportunity where they could say, hey, you, know, you need us out on the floor. Once that small ball started working, we just went with it, and it ended up not being their night. And there will be more nights like this for them. It, unfortunately, that's just how basketball goes. You're going to have some off nights. It's how they fight through it. So I'm looking forward to them against Clemson rebounding and showing, hey, you're going to need us on the floor during crunch time. You're going to need one of us out here and we can be that one, two punch along with everyone else. Uh, we can be those guys that you can count on down the stretch.
0: I mentioned that it was, you could either take it as a good or a bad thing that Duke adapted a little bit to Virginia tech style last night. The bad version of that is you would hope that in a game where Virginia tech doesn't really have someone that can guard Mark Williams down low, that Mark Williams would be able to score more. And so I, I'm, I'm a little disappointed and cons- maybe a little bit concerned about Mark Williams. This is now, you know, if you look at the Ohio State game where he was also he was good but not great. This is two of the marquee games in a row where I don't think Mark Williams has played up to his potential. That being said, I think he was extremely effective against Kentucky and and Gonzaga. So if you, if you look at those four games as being, you know, the 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 four really telling games, the four games that Duke has played against, you know, upper tier tournament Uh, level competition. Mark Williams has kind of gone two for four this year. And I hope Duke doesn't have many of those games left on the schedule, but I hope that he's able to impose his will a little bit more and to, to put a little more of that, that offensive juice into his game. I think on defense, you know, this was a game where we knew he wasn't going to be as effective on defense because Virginia tech is not trying to score inside, but on offense, he should have been able to counter that.
2: You know, to me, it wasn't as much about Mark and Theo's play as it was how the rest of the team played when they were in the game. Um, and I, I want to I say, I, I was disappointed. There were a couple times in the first half where I saw uh, both Jeremy Roach and Paulo Bancaro drive the lane. And when the help defense came, uh, they, they took a difficult shot when they could have tossed up a lob to Mark for a dunk. And I think Duke doesn't look enough... Mark Williams is 7-1 and has really l- super long arms. We've said seven- six wingspan, and he can really jump. I-, I think Duke needs to find ways to get him easy baskets more than they do. Um, uh, that we do an okay job at it. We-, we need to do better at it. And so part of my bad here is that I think Duke, um, we're-, we're not making Mark Williams dangerous. We're not taking advantage of his gifts. Um, and I, I put that partially on Mark, but I put it partially on his teammates. And, and regarding Theo John, I, you know, he, he only played seven minutes. Duke was minus eight during his seven minutes. That's that's the worst plus minus in the team. You never want to get too hung up on plus minus in one game, you know, one game or even a couple of games. It's, it's very much a cumulative stat that you need to look at over a long period of time, but that's a really bad number. And, uh, you know, I – I know Duke's going to have opponents where we need big men in the future, but I'm I'm really not sure we're going to see Theo John play more than maybe 10 minutes or so in any game going forward, uh, other than, you know, blowouts or if there's injury or foul trouble, things that, you know, change the calculus. I, I'm, I'm, I'm unsure of Theo's role moving forward more than, uh, you know, a spot minute backup to, to Mark Williams. Um, and, and as we sort of said, I'm not sure Duke's going to be, going big all that much going forward? Because I think Coach K would prefer to go small.
1: I think right there, that plus minus is what I was going to mention. Mark Williams only had a plus three and minus five. That's the minus uh, that's a total of minus five, right? Like that is an uncharacteristically bad game in that particular stat area for both Mark Williams and Theo John, because normally they are one of those guys that are in the teens when it comes to, or at least combined in the teens when it comes to plus minus. So that's why I say last night's version of Duke may not have been our best one, because I think our best one still involves those two being very much involved in both the offense and defense.
0: Jason, another one of the struggles for Duke last night, and this sort of is is on the same topic as as the big men, is the rebounding battle that Duke had against Virginia Tech. You would think coming into this game that Duke would be able to dominate the Hokies on the boards, but that didn't really happen.
2: No, and and I think I think I've now resigned myself that Duke is going to be just an average rebounding team. And by average, I mean, average nationally, you know, among all teams, all 350 some odd teams in, in NCA division, one maybe a little tiny bit above average, but not much. Um, It's kind of surprising when you consider that we are one of the taller teams in the country that we have guys like um, Wendell Moore and Trevor Keels and AJ Griffin, who have really solid frames that would seem to allow them to be strong rebounders from, you know, from the guard kind of positions but in this game, we only grab eight offensive rebounds. Um, and, and half of those were, were Paolo Bancaro missing close shots and then getting his own rebound and putting it back. Not to say that's not valuable, but that's not exactly the same thing as a regular offensive rebound when you're already sort of in good position. Duke is now 138th in the country at offensive rebounding percentage. And, I, you know, I, I just thought this was going to be something this team was going to be better at coming into the season. But it's worth noting. I think this is kind of funny. I went and checked so so i saw that duke was 138th and i was like oh wow I, I you know i wonder which teams in the acc we really need to worry about with offensive rebounding who are the because usually it's unc we talked about on the last podcast that carolina is not as good at rebounding as they used to be so i was like i wonder who the really good offensive rebounding teams are in the acc you ready for this the best two offensive rebounding teams in the acc Pitt and bc maybe offensive rebounding doesn't really matter <laughs> <laughs> Those
1: well are you also teams... have to miss a lot of shots to get a lot of offensive rebounds well
2: no wait hold on it's not that because it, this is this is this is rate not number this is percentage right okay this is percentage okay. of missed shots not total like if it was total offensive rebounds i would get it no Pitt and bc are the only two acc teams who are in the top 50 in the country at offensive rebounding percentage so so maybe it's not a big deal maybe i'm worrying about nothing
0: <laughs> jason i think the the key here maybe if you want to see the silver lining as you point out being good at offensive rebounding doesn't necessarily mean that you are a good team and it just goes to show that there's more than one way to skin this cat and and duke has has demonstrated here let, let me let me try to put the the silver lining on duke has demonstrated this year that they have multiple ways that they can win a game because if you watch just the virginia tech game and just the gonzaga game they're basically other than than paulo bancaro being extremely effective They're basically two entirely different versions of Duke.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hey, before we go, um, I've got uh, one other little bad thing and one other little good thing I want to do really quick. So another bad thing I thought in this game, and I want to be clear, I'm not complaining about the refs, but I'm going to complain about the refs here. I thought the refs were truly horrid at times. There was a a sequence late in the game where Duke was on a fast break and Wendell Moore got fouled just as he was about to go up for a layup and the ref called it a foul on the floor. On the
1: floor, and he made the basket. Yeah.
2: I hate that. That is a total bailout by the referee. The ref need it's a gift to Virginia tech to call that foul. A good ref waits, a heartbeat there to call that foul to see if the offense can battle through it and get off the layup that they were, that, that Wendell did. And only seconds after that, they called that awful jump ball where Duke clearly had control of the ball. and Virginia tech didn't. And, and I think possession changed. If this had been a close game, I would have lost my mind at those two calls. But that luckily, particular,
1: that one call uh, on the fast break, especially, it wasn't like he blew the whistle and then window went up. Window was halfway in the air with the ball when the whistle blew. So everyone was like, "Okay, that's a continuation." Then he goes, "No, it was like you know, 13 feet ago, back over there." Like,
2: oh, it's awful. That's bad. Yeah. And, and, and like I said, I I have one more good thing. Go back to the good. (laughs) I forgot to mention this earlier. I do want to pray. We haven't said some of the names I'm about to mention enough uh, on this podcast. So I wanted to praise Duke's shot selection. You know, uh, again, we, this is something that we've been highlighting now for a couple of weeks that Duke needs to find the better shots. And we really did. We weren't great in the first half, but in the second half, Duke hit better than 61% on their two point shots. We did not settle for bad threes when they were there and and there were bad threes available, but we didn't take them. Duke only took five, three pointers in the second half. Look, I want Duke to be shooting good threes, but I'm glad we didn't take bad ones. It is really telling to me that even with Mark and Theo going scoreless and not playing it pretty much at all in the second half, Duke still won the points in the paint 42 to 36, those points in the paint. um, A lot of them were, were off of, Duke just being more athletic and taking the ball to the basket. Specifically, there, were, there was a sequence in the second half during that big run where A.J. Griffin and Wendell Moore um, made super difficult shots in the lane, showing off their athleticism, their body control. Virginia Tech was playing good defense, and Duke was scoring anyway. And that's the way you break a team's will. And, and, and lastly, I want to mention Trevor Keels. He has now scored in double figures in four consecutive games, every game since the exam break. Again, we talked about his shot selection against Ohio State. It was bad. Against Ohio State, he took bad shots. It is light years better now. Trevor Keels was four for four on two-point shots in yesterday's game. That's a a big deal. Big development for Duke if we're going to take smart shots.
1: And just to go back to that rebounding thing you mentioned in the second half, we actually went 61.5% from the entire floor in the second half. We only missed 10 shots. And of those 10 shots, we got four offensive rebounds. I'm pretty sure that's 40%. I there think that's go. pretty good. <laughs>
2: I'll take
1: it.
0: And by the way, we made it through this whole recap pretty much without talking about Wendell Moore, who had just another like, oh, um, very Wendell strong game. overall yeah. great defensive effort. 18 points, blah, blah, blah. Um, Wendell Moore just, just like now it's a given, right? It's amazing that he, he made so much progress that we don't even have to mention uh, the fact that he went, he went what six for nine last night from the field. And uh, and it's just like a, a ho hum game.
2: Four, well, four rebounds and four assists. He didn't get to a 10, five, and five game, so it, it it's not not an important yeah, game. Yeah, so he stinks, right?
0: right? <laughs> he's pulling he's pulling his averages down. Bench eyes. Uh, so Bench. that that's a huge bummer.
2: All right, and by we are- by the way, his his defense on Hunter Couture. He was the guy assigned to to guard Hunter Couture, who may have been the most dangerous perimeter, probably was the most dangerous perimeter player for Virginia Tech, and he he was great on Couture the whole game.
0: Yeah, just uh, 10 points on 10 shots for Couture. That's That's a great night for Wendell Moore. All right, guys, this game was awesome. We're not going to preview the Clemson game because we'll get to do another episode before then. That's not for another week out, but we are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we need to talk about the latest commitment to Duke. I know it feels like we do this every week, but we've got another one, so stick around. So as we mentioned at the top of the show and right before the break, Duke secured another commitment from a high school basketball player just this afternoon, just, I don't know, less than an hour before we started recording, Uh, Duke got a verbal commitment from four-star power forward, Sean Stewart. He comes out of Florida. He joins five-star guard, Caleb Foster, as a 2023 commitment for Duke. So he'll not be uh, in Durham next year, but, but the following season, he's two years away. He also was holding offers from Michigan, Ohio State, Georgetown, and Alabama. Uh, he had all the he had all the all the good quotes. I think about how Duke has been his dream school and the relationship that he's developed with John Shire and the coaching staff. But I need to let Jason come in here and tell us a bit more about Sean Stewart and how he fits
2: in to the Blue Devils roster. So you mentioned some of the schools he was looking at. It's worth noting he was also very interested in. Uh, you mentioned Stanford. He was also very interested in Harvard, Howard, Kansas. I love hearing Stanford and Harvard in there. This is a kid who's a legitimate student. He is someone who is coming to be a student athlete at Duke. Um, he, he's a very versatile uh, 6'8 forward. Like you said, like he's somewhere in the 210, 220 kind of range. Really solidly built. Um, he has a great motor and work ethic. People who watch him play say he's, he's one of these guys who's, you know, constantly in motion and constantly working hard to, to get himself in a better position on the floor. When he came and visited Duke, they showed him tape of players that they think he, his game can imitate. And the two players they showed him tape of were Zion Williamson and Emil Jefferson. I want to be clear. Um, Sean Stewart is not going to be another Zion Williamson. He's not that athletically gifted who is, (laughs) but I think Emil Jefferson is a really great comp for this kid, a guy who worked on his game and got better and better every single year he was in school. Um, Sean Stewart has really good length and quickness. He is physically mature. He is strong. He's, he's a bit of a matchup nightmare because of that quickness and strength combination. Um, he's not a great shooter yet, Uh, but he has really high basketball IQ, really high IQ. And he's one of these guys who's a winner. Like Whenever you see his AAU teams playing, they're always doing better than expected. And then the last thing I wanted to mention about him, Duke loves to get guys whose parents were really good athletes. Sean Stewart's father is Michael Stewart, who some of you may remember, he was a forward in the NBA. He spent nine years on the Sacramento Kings, Toronto Raptors, Cavaliers, Celtics, and Atlanta Hawks. Never a big star in the NBA, but um he was one of these guys who who found the right time to be good like he was really good like his rookie year and and then he was okay his second year and and as a result uh, he was undrafted by the way so he 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 wasn't under a a rookie scale contract a first rounder contract so he became a free agent sort of faster than usual and he signed like a 24 million dollar contract in his third season he was so he was never like a you know, he's never a guy who was playing every game for anybody or, or even a consistent starter, but he made more than $25 million in his career. He was a great shot blocker in the NBA. And um, he's someone who played for Cal and played four years there. So I think that Sean will understand that it takes time to develop as a player, that it's not instantaneous. Um, This is a kid who's ranked between like 25 and 50. He's a, a four-star recruit. He's not sort of the flashy superstar kind of recruit that we've seen a lot from John Shire. I think this is someone that Duke is expecting, you know, will will have some impact as a freshman, but his primary impact for the program will be a little bit further down the road, but God, it's just another recruiting win for John Shire. It seems like every time Shire makes an offer, that person says, I want to come play for Duke.
1: A big man who is not seven one. I mean, Talk about versatility. John Shire can recruit them all, man. Like that's this is this is gonna be great because he's gonna come in after that class that's gonna have what three, seven footers in it. And of course, we may expect we should expect at least one, if not two, of them to go uh, after one year. He's gonna have a prime opportunity to learn behind one of those three and also just to get, you know, some playing time and be kind of the bulk because right now it's six, eight, two thirty. I mean, he can be 240 by the time he enters college or, or he can slim down to 225 and be a more versatile on the wing for, uh, forward. There's a lot of opportunities for Sean Stewart. Uh, and I'm glad, again, that the the brand is strong. We're just getting recruits left and right. I mean, we we have a couple more days before Christmas. If, if John Shire wants to give me a Christmas present, he can go out and get a couple more recruits. But, you know, this is this is a great, great sign for Duke that everything is moving on full steam ahead.
2: And, and, and you know, the really cool thing here is Because Duke has done so well, number one class in the class of 22, it's clear that we are now really shifting to 23. Duke is getting on the class of 23 faster than anybody else. And as a result, at the moment, between Caleb Foster and Sean Stewart, Duke has the number one class in the class of 23. (laughs) It's still early. There are not many top 25 guys who've committed, but the ones who have are coming to be Blue Devils.
0: And looking ahead at that roster of the guys who are either around now or who are coming in next year, There's not a ton of guarantee about exactly who's going to be filling big man minutes at that point. Like Kyle Filipowski talked about how he wants to stay multiple years. Maybe he'll still be around for his sophomore season. But, you know, if Stewart develops and and keeps keeps getting better every day and there's like you were saying, Jason, given given where he comes from, uh, you you would expect him to, to continue working hard he might be getting minutes early on in his Duke career. So we'll, we'll, we'll see about that. And of course we'll see how the rest of the class develops. Cause as you also point out, Duke is, is very far from done with the class of 2023. It does feel like, I think the class of 22 might be wrapped up at this point. Although you can't, (laughs) I don't think you can count John Shire out ever. So we we still um, have
1: a couple I mean, Caleb Foster, they've talked about him possibly reclassifying, right. You know, there's, there's a couple of those that might, might come into fruition, but I mean, we already have what six guys in the class seven. of twenty twenty two? Seven.
2: Yeah, we're <laughs> six six we're guys
1: good.
0: who are six guys who are who are signed and committed. So yeah, that, I don't know. We'll 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 see how how all of that develops. There's still plenty of time between now and when those guys actually show up on campus. All right, we need to wrap up this episode with a player of the week because it is now the end of the week as far as Duke games go. We only get the one game against Virginia Tech. Donald, I will let you go first. Who do you have for player of the week?
1: My password started with P5, so I'm going with Paulo Banqueiro, Uh, for obvious reasons. The man was a beast in the second half. Uh, I could have gone uh, with A.J. Griffin as well. Again, he was part of the password uh, in the second half, but I think P5 is a well-deserving one for this week and, and really, again, showed his versatility in how we can dominate a basketball game.
0: Jason, who do you have for player of the week?
2: Yeah, there really are only two options, and I'm going to take the other one because Donald took Paulo. I'm going to take A.J. Griffin. Uh, The emergence of A.J. Griffin is the thing that allows the Duke Blue Devils to be A, more versatile, and B, even better than they already have been. Yes, the number two team in the land maybe even better than they were just a week ago. I took A.J. Griffin last week because I was so excited by his
0: emergence, and I noted that Look, it was a week of of weaker opponents for Duke, and maybe this was just AJ showing off against against less strong competition. I am going to take him again this week because I think that he was uh, he, he was outstanding against Virginia Tech. And I am looking forward to more AJ Griffin Player of the Week awards. I do not begrudge Donald for taking Paula Bancaro. He was obviously amazing. Wendell Moore was great, too, even though. Uh, we barely talked about him, so uh, Trevor Keels had
2: a really good game, Kiels and Trevor really Keels was <laughs> as as
0: you said. So uh, a, a a wealth of of uh, of applicants this week for Player of the Week. We will do one parting shot. Jason is going to bring it to you, and it concerns Duke guys in the NBA, and not a name that I think we expected to talk about this week. Jason, what do we have?
2: Yeah, uh, word just came down a couple hours ago. Javon Delaurier has signed a 10-day contract with the Milwaukee Bucks. Folks, you may hate COVID. There are a lot of terrible, awful, horrible things about COVID. But it has created opportunities for some players uh, in the NBA because there there are so many guys in the NBA in COVID protocols. Teams have to fill out their rosters. And one of the guys who's getting to fill out a roster is Javin Delorier, Um, uh, he probably isn't going to play a lot during those 10 days. Milwaukee has five games over the next 10 days. Um, uh, Milwaukee currently has three guys in the COVID health and safety protocols. Um, I mean, there are some teams that have like five and six guys who are on the shelf due to COVID right now. So Milwaukee's not as bad off as some other teams, but they had room on their roster Uh, Javin played for them in the preseason and, and clearly impressed them with his work ethic, with his motor, with his ability to rebound and finish around the basket. He'd been playing for their G league team and doing fairly well. So it's really nice for Javin to, to get, to be up with an NBA team. Um, I hope he manages to get into a game and, you know, scratch the scorebook a little bit over the next 10 days. And of course, the most important thing to him is he will earn 53,176 dollars over the next 10 days for being on his NBA team. That is probably equal to, or maybe even more than his entire G League salary for this season. $53,000 for the next 10 days. Way to go. That is a nice Christmas present for Javin Delorier.
1: I mean, you mentioned that, the Bucks are kind of well off in the sense that they only have three guys in COVID protocols at this point. But one of them's is Giannis Antetokounmpo. So uh, that is the necessity for Javon Delorier to be signed to a 10-day contract. They need some length uh, because they're one of the best players in the world is not playing right now and may not play for the next uh, few days. So uh, congrats to Javon for, for making it to the bigs, getting it. Hey, a latte in the bigs is still a latte in the bigs, right? So, Amen. I, I, I appreciate that I will be able to hopefully maybe see him play on Christmas day.
0: Nobody on the DBR podcast is going to begrudge Javin Deloria getting that bag. The bag may not be millions. It might be tens of thousands, but, but you go for it, sir. And, and hopefully he shows out and gets signed to a longer deal. I did remember we had one more parting shot we needed to do Donald wax poetic for maybe a minute or two
2: about the jerseys. Oh my gosh! I can't believe we've gone this far without talking about the jerseys.
1: Look, no, no, it's great that we saved it for this. So I, I'm just going to issue a plea here. I'm 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 looking directly to the camera to Duke Men's Basketball, whoever whoever's in charge, other than Coach K, about these sort of matters. Sell this thing. Put these things on sale. I don't care how you do it. Put the jersey on. Give us the jersey. Give us the jersey. Give us the shorts. Give us the warm ups. Give us give us the t shirts. Give us everything because that is. One of the greatest jerseys I've seen. We played well in them in the second half and we'll, we'll dis- dismiss the first half. Maybe they were just you know, blinded by the glitz and the glamour of these jerseys, but the Brotherhood white jerseys are absolutely incredible. Pair that with the Navy. you got a great, great combination that you can use at least a couple of times a year. I'm not saying use that for every game because I still love our Duke blue, but that is also Duke blue. In fact, that is the original Duke blue that they were wearing last night. And I want them to wear that as many times as they possibly can. It was I, outstanding.
2: I think that this is probably a Nike thing more than a Duke thing. I think Nike is probably largely in control of you know, sort of what jerseys get sold, what styles get sold. So if there's anyone out there, anyone within the sound of my voice who knows anyone who works at Nike, get the word to them. Those Brotherhood jerseys would sell like hotcakes. I Jason, there's this-
0: no, Jason, there's no way that that is true. Like that is, Nike must want to sell every jersey they possibly can,
1: right? Here's the thing. This is a Nike. This is not a Nike thing when it comes to these no? two particular jerseys. These two particular, the Brotherhood brand is something that no one has ever been able to get their hands on unless they are a member of said Brotherhood. This is something where Duke would have to release that. Nike has wanted to release these for years. Nike oh. releases just about everything we else we do. We, they even released those jerseys, those those old those jerseys that we had that had just the D on the front. That was blank. They released the the gray jerseys back All yonder, the ugly that, gray ones. All the ugly gray ones. They they release all those. They want to release this one. It's just that Duke will not well it more specifically, the Duke basketball team will not allow them to because they think that it's something that's it's, K- it's
0: Coach K's K is in
2: control. This is Coach so, K's so, call.
0: So can I issue, can I issue one like minor complaint about like I I know this is shocking, but I actually would have preferred if the shorts had the gothic D logo on them rather than the block D with the, with the basketball and the hoop. I think that logo is awesome, but mm-hmm. I think the shorts with the, with the Gothic D would have been even more Epic. I agree with you, Donald. These were so fresh. And, and I was the, the hype video that they put out yesterday afternoon where AJ and and Mark Williams were, were playing, video playing the games video game the jerseys. <laughs> uh, I, they, they put that video out and I shared it to the two of you. And I, I said, do we need to do an emergency podcast? Just about this? <laughs> Cause it was, it was too awesome.
1: So uh, the Jersey's I need had, more had of that. I need, I need more of that in my life.
0: You could tell that, that it had the players hyped as well. I so that was exciting.
2: The players clearly want to show these things off. This is a big deal. I, I think that John Shire, when he goes out and he recruits players, when he's talking to Sean Stewart, he's like, Hey, look at the Jersey you could wear.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's they probably sick. do look they uh, Duke men's basketball, Twitter after the, uh, after the Elon game on Saturday, they're like, Hey, 5,000 retweets of this post and we'll release a new Jersey on Tuesday. 5,000 is like they do 5,000. When they say something like Paulo Bancaro's enter the game, like that'll get 6,000 retweets. So they knew what they were doing. They wanted to release them on this night for this team. The only thing I will, I will uh, say as a complaint is that Virginia Tech didn't, didn't match with the maroon. It would have created a nice jersey aesthetic. I think the orange is fine, but the, with, the, with the maroon, it would have taken more focus off of the maroon and focused it on the white, which is where it should have been because those jerseys are some <laughs> of the greatest things we've ever seen.
0: All right, that is going to do it for episode 371. See, we, all we did was recap a game, and we still managed to get a, a very full episode out of it. That's how That's how good this one was. This was episode 371 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Stay in touch with us, Podcast at gmail.com. We will talk to you again early next week to preview Duke's second ACC game, which will be against Clemson after Christmas. So until then, for Jason and Donald, I am Sam. Stay safe out there. Enjoy your Christmas holiday, and we'll talk to you again soon. Duke band, take us home.
2: Ho, oh, ho, ho. Merry Christmas, everybody. Oh, by the way, um, at the very, very end, I just want to do a really quick um, congrats and shout out to Javin DeLaurier because he, uh, he just signed a 10 day contract with the Milwaukee Bucks.
1: I was just about <laughs> to mention that. I saw that right before I, I jumped on. That's incredible. I mean, it's what it is right wait, now. Wait, wait, wait. COVID.
2: We'll wait, 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 wait. We will talk about it. We'll talk about it. <laughs> just a quick one at the end of the show.